there in my throat. All right. Well, welcome, everyone. Tim O'Connor and uh, Golf Spiritual Leader with you again. And uh, Tim's uh, dog, Fred. Isn't that weird? Don't you think that's weird that Tim has a dog named Fred and I work with a guy named Fred? It would be interesting if my dog's name was Tim. (laughs) I've always liked... Like sort of human names for animals, like for pets, and uh, what you can't hear me. Just, just a little louder. Pal. No, dude, turn your headphones up. Like, like my my volume is exactly where it's supposed to be. My technology has maxed out. As soon yeah. as you started well. this, your volume went down. Okay, well, that's because I was Folks, speaking we're not, softly. We're not, we're not bickering. Okay, <laughs> it's because I was, you know, I, I could yell like this if you want, but no one wants that for the next hour. No. Um, no. Okay, well, there, there, I boosted my volume a little bit for you. How's does that work for you? It's just fine. I'll make do. I'll, yeah. do. I'm, I'm, I'll be the. But, but I can promise you that your editor of this show. your Man. voice and my voice as we record them are perfectly matched. All right. Maybe, maybe I'm just getting. Older, yeah, maybe. maybe my hearing has started to decline. Well, no, and, and those and those, now your those... volume just suddenly went perfect. Okay, well, those and part of it is what Zoom does. I don't want to explain this to the audience, but what Zoom does is when I have the music playing and we're talking over it, it starts to do something. So. Oh, yeah. there's yet more of the edification of so you, this podcast. And you can talk a little closer into that microphone. There okay. you go. There um, we go. Okay. So anyways, cool. folks, this is how uh, this is how we do it. This is just like a, you know, like a round of golf. It gets, sometimes it gets uh, started off, uh, you know, a little bit scrappy. You hit it there in the right rough. Anyway, welcome to the show. <laughs> uh, I was talking about dogs. I've always loved dogs. Names like that, like Stan and Freddy. And uh, Fred had a dog named Billy. My daughter has a dog named Billy. You know, I, when we were younger, though, it seems like like when you and I were kids, every dogs was like, you know, champ and uh, and uh, king and stuff like that. Remember? <laughs> totally. Like totally. every German shepherd name was king or something. And uh, anyway. well, I had I had three boxers as a kid. We always thought they were noble and regal. Yes. So the names their names were Duchess, Duke and Rex. See, there you go. <laughs> Freddie, though, Freddie's such a friendly dog name. I love it. It is. Well, he's he's um, he has the uncropped ears. You know, yeah. boxers back in the day always had the ears. So now people, I would take him for a walk, and and uh, girls, young women say, "Oh, he's so cute." Yeah, yeah. Well, if you're you know if you're single, get a dog, dude. I've been saying that for years. <laughs> Because you know what it does, it's it really is. There's a psychological reason for it, and what it oh, is yeah. is it singles, it signals to women. Uh, apparently, we don't call them girls anymore, even if they are. Um, it signals to them that you're okay, that you're safe. You know, when I'm out with Stan in uh, Stan's golf park, and uh, a younger female human being walks by, whether they have a dog or not, they always like, oh, he Stan, and I seem less threatening. You know. That's right. <laughs> anyway, welcome everybody. We've really started at a high level. This no, I, I, listen, I love the level we're at. You know, let's not even think about it. Let's thank. Uh, let's thank our sponsors, Jonathan Wong yes. Apparel. I'm wearing uh, a warm up uh, jacket uh, from uh, Zero Restriction. Timmy's uh, dressed. Uh, I'm going to guess uh, is that uh, B Dratty or Fairway and Green that you're wearing? Is it B Dratty? Number one, good guess. Yep. 
first time I've worn it. I had to even take off the little, yeah. you know, cardboardy thing. Hey, dude, what is that thing on the cardboardy thing? I want to ask you this. There's like a, what looks like a ball marker. Is that That's what that what is? I, I'm hazarding a guess. It is. Yes. Okay. So now I got about half a dozen of them. <laughs> no, so do I. Anyway, they're really, really nice. What you can see there is Tim's wearing his uh, his uh, polo. Uh, there's also uh, zero restriction, fairway and green, EPNY, Royal Albatross garb, and PRG golf. That's what uh, Jonathan reps. And of course, uh, through the bag, it's uh, tailor made. Uh, it's quite the experience. Tim's going to tell you about a, a cool experience for him and his son this week getting fit at TaylorMade. But I can tell you from uh, all the uh, reports, everyone is loving these uh, drivers. They changed the shape. Now they're changing the way uh, drivers are constructed. The all-new Sim 2 built differently around a forged aluminum ring. All of it translates into uh, distance, control, the twisty face thing. <laughs> and uh, and I, <laughs> I'm sure that's not technically what it's called. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Visit TaylorMadeGolf.ca to learn more. You know what's interesting is that um, neither of us are what what you would call um, gearheads, mm-hmm. as some of the players on my on the university team say. Um, I can remember what, being at a family reunion, and my 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 cousin in law or whatever. Um, Dave, because it'd be, hey, what's the kick point on that driver? <laughs> I have zero idea. Yeah. <laughs> what's kick point? <laughs> yeah, there's a there's a lot of that stuff that I you know that I I've heard of and I somewhat you know our our old friend who used to be a TaylorMade Stu Bannantine, you know I remember having a a round of golf where he tried to explain a few of those things to me like you know something that tips stiff or whatever and I was yeah. like yeah that sounds great here just do it to this <laughs> make this do it I, I find that just I might ask somebody a question like that and they're about like five or six words in and my I'm like my brain is already woo, off yeah. somewhere else um this show uh, is, uh, I guess we should get started. Do you want, I thought we would kind of ease into the whole, you know, debriefing. Um, well, I'm going to interview you. Yes. And um, I've got a couple of, uh, you know, I, today I will continue uh, delving further into the, uh, the pathways to par. I've got some great takeaways, I think, for uh, the everyday, everyday average player. And, uh, but I did want to start with that experience because uh, I really thought it was interesting. You and your son, Sean... Mm-hmm. who is a interested golfer and uh you took him was this so and i think this is a good conversation because a lot of people who have never gone through what sean has gone through uh and you and i have and we're not talking about some kind of male ritual we're talking <laughs> <laughs> just for a second there sounded Nothing like that it, zoomed, yeah. it didn't involve shaving or duct tape or having That's to right. go across a crowded intersection at midnight yeah it was a, it's there was we're not talking about some voodoo initiation <clears throat> we're talking about getting fit for clubs <laughs> At the TaylorMade Fitting Center, um, and just what that's like for the average person—it's pretty mind blowing, actually. Oh yeah, he he really enjoyed it. He struggled a bit with. He said that you know, as often happens uh, with you know, Sean's a novice. He was a hell of a hockey player, but came into golf late, so it's really his second year of really being into golf, and so. As a novice, his game comes and goes. So he had about. He said he got there. He had about fifteen, like great shots, and then 
and then just topped a bunch after that and and you know intermittently hit some good shots so that's always kind of a tough thing uh for people when they're being fit it's like oh how am i hitting them but yeah. these guys this guy jared uh you'd think i know his last name but uh, Jared, wonderful Jared guy. Kick Point is his. <laughs> <laughs> he would know what a kick point is. Jared Flex Kick Point. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, great young guy, uh, golf professional, and uh, he just made Sean completely at ease. And uh, so Sean didn't get the full meal deal because with COVID, they're not doing the thing that makes you look like uh, Dieter Sprocket. You know, oh, yeah, I had that. with all the diodes and the lights and things. The yeah, yeah. But they use, you know, they they, got, they have the uh, the GC quad there from Foresight. They got the screen, all the info. So Sean thought it was really, really cool, and it was just fun dad and lad trip into the big city and talking and all that stuff. So it was wonderful. You, you know, the 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 reason I thought it was important to talk about the fact that he is a, a novice golfer. There's there's and a lot of times I think novice players don't think they should get fit, but. You know, it, what, at whatever level you're at, a tailor-made fitting experience will make whatever level you're at uh, better because you'll have clubs that are the right length, the right lie angles, all those things. Um, it, at Sean's uh, stage, it's not about are you going to hit these longer, but they're just going to be more comfortable for him to hit totally. them as best as he can at, at whatever level you're at. Yeah, he's going to just, even from just like standing over the ball, more comfortable because the yeah. lie angle is going to be perfect. Um, you know, the club is going to lie nicely on the ground. Uh, it's going to be the right length for him. Sean's six one. I mean, big kid, you mm-hmm. know, gym rat. Um, and the importance of getting fit is, is really important. Uh, and here's a good story. So I gave him my hand-me-downs from the last couple of years, stiff shaft. So last year he comes home, he bra- he'd broken his driver right just above the, um, I don't know what you call it, where the shaft goes into the driver. I told you we're not much of gear people. Okay. Where the shaft goes into the club, that little space. <laughs> yes. It broke there. The the What is that thing called? I was going to say, it's, <laughs> it doesn't matter what it's called, because obviously neither of us know. Yeah. And uh, then it broke. About two, yeah, then about two or three weeks later, three wood. And I asked this... Um, this this client of mine, Rob, who we had on our show, he, uh, now he's a gearhead, he, um, and he said, uh, "Well, your son, he's twenty five years old, strong as an ox, yeah, and he probably has amazing hand speed." Um, and he said, "Those shafts are just too too light for him." That's so right. Taylor made Nick was at uh, Taylor was nice enough to send me some um, X shafts. And uh, so far, Sean hasn't broken a driver yet. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, that's a sentence you're not going to hear uh, from Tim or anyone or I, anyone our age. Oh, yeah, I cracked my driver. Oh, did you? Really? And did you hit it on something? Yes, I did. No, I dropped it down the stairs. <laughs> that's right. It's not going to break from hitting a golf ball anymore. Uh, that ship has sailed. Um, well, that was one of the things, just real quick, the hand yeah, speed thing. That's what Jared said. Uh, Sean had incredibly fast hand speed, and well, he's a hockey player. Totally, yeah. So you know, it won't take him long. And, and I would say that most of the people I know that came to golf later, and I mean not you know at, at their teens or early twenties, if they played hockey, and and over any other sport, I have found that that 
leads them to be better golfers eventually because they understand compressing something. Yep. You know, if you played tennis, that's fine. You understand movement. But if you played hockey, there's a, a real correlation into how the, the, the shaft of the, of the stick bends into the ice to produce the thing to go up. Whereas a lot of people who didn't play that sport, you can see they try and lift it. Yeah, help it. Help it. Whereas hockey players have a sense of uh, pushing it in to pushing it down to make it go up, which is one of the things I think is, you know, we, you know, and I, but you know, I've been playing golf for a hundred years. We, we forget that that is sort of a, uh, one of those fundamentals. Like when my girl Rachel started playing a couple of years ago, it's almost weird to watch somebody want to lift up. But it, it also, when you look at it through a beginner's eyes, it kind of makes sense. Oh, it totally makes It's kind of what you want to do. You want to lift up. Well, you don't understand how, like, okay, you, how, yeah, it just totally makes sense that I'm going to have to help this thing up off the ground. Right. So I want it on a nice cushy line. I'm going to come in like this and, and, and scoop that thing up. And that's why golf is just so hard for so many people. It's the hardest thing so, in the world. Well, all these contradictions, you know, hit down, ball goes up. Yeah. Um, now, what's interesting is that usually it's been in, in the past. I'm interested in your take on this one is the harder you hit the ball, the more crooked it went. And but now people are seeing that swing fast. Yeah. And it doesn't go as crooked. But well, a, I think what it is generally is what people when they tend to hit it hard. It's like they're hitting it with their big muscles. And it's like their shoulders and that kind of thing, as opposed to body rotation and all that good stuff. Well, what I would say, you know, when we were younger, the equipment lent it, you know, it was about swinging smoothly yep. because the, and, and again, I don't want to make this about gear, but, you know, the, the, a persimmon driver with a ballata ball or a, an older version just produced so much side spin, yep. which is why... You know, in the, you know, sort of the modern era in the 60s and 70s when, you know, Palmer and, and Nicholas in their prime, you know, very few people were like Trevino, which were like big cutters of the ball because it really did diminish how far the thing would go, which is kind of hilarious now when you look at most of the top players in the game, how they talk about hitting a hard cut because it can, that goes 340 you know, yards in the air. That didn't exist technically in the time of Jack and Arnie and Lee, which is why it was sort of odd that Lee Trevino came along and hit that sort of block cut all day long. That didn't go very far. Anyway. You so, sure know how to find it. Well, and that's the thing. So, yeah, it's interesting now that kids like at Sean's age, you're just taught to hit it as hard as, and fast as you can. Because there's mm-hmm. because of the modern tech, technology, there's not as much spin put on the ball. Yeah, and I've all, but I've always um, held to the adage with kids is, and and I learned this from people like Ben Kern. Have them hit it as hard as they can, and then they can learn how to find it. That's right. <laughs> because if you don't get that from an early age of pow go after it yeah you 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 won't learn it as an adult well famously that's what jack grout you know was basically basically i'll say basically again uh that's what jack <laughs> grout told a young uh, fat jack just swing as hard as you can and uh that's why jack when he got to be a strong fat kid uh he hit it so long that's why you know when bobby jones said he's playing a game of which i'm unfamiliar it was about the distance he was hitting it 
You know, it was a game Jones recognized strategically. Segway alert. Um, <laughs> but it was the distance at which Jack Nicholas could move a golf ball through the air. Mm-hmm. And uh, anyhow. So here we are. It's uh, Wednesday, June 30th while we're recording this. And yeah. uh, the last time we got together was the Friday before the uh, Glen Karen uh, Senior Geezer Invitational. That's right. And this is where I want to just basically take over here, okay? Well, I'm going to set you up because uh, coming up, Tim's going to talk to a uh, golf spiritual leader about a uh, another uh, recent victory. And then after we break that down, I'm going to... Uh, I've got a little thing prepared that I'm going to I'm going to actually interview you. Isn't it ironic? I have some questions prepared. Okay. Um do you I want some, some uh, do you want some um, music? Some Segway yes. music? Yeah, All right. I would. Yeah. That'd be great. Really? How about uh how about a little uh a little talking heads? And now again, don't worry about the volume cuz Zoom is going to depress yeah, the I, music here in a second. Hey, I'm fully confident <clears throat> in your hands. All right. Hang I'd just on. like to say, um, welcome everyone to the press room <laughs> of the uh, Senior Club Championship at Glen Karen. Uh, I'd like to thank all the volunteers, certainly our professionals, for putting on a great event. Yes. Uh, it was a tough one. Uh, we had some weather, but uh, everyone got through it really well. And, uh, well, we're just delighted to have in the press room with us uh, our champion, um, Golf Spiritual Leader. Uh, also known as uh, Howard Glassman, and um, so we're just we're, we're tickled to have you here, Champ. Um, so, you know, as uh, I'm not Amanda Balionis, I'll do my best. But wow, three out of four years, how does it feel? Well, thank you, Tim. I echo your uh, <coughs> sentiments. Uh, it was a uh, well-run weekend. Uh, the conditions were uh, challenging. Uh, Saturday, we had some wind, but Sunday, as uh, you could see out there, it was chaos. <laughs> it was uh, there was a lot of uh, high scores, uh, but uh, yeah, I'm uh, you know I'm I'm tickled. It's it's funny. I've had so many conversations with you and other people in my golf circle over the last twenty four hours, but uh, or forty eight hours, I should say. But but I, I feel great about it. Uh, sir, uh, thanks uh, for asking. And I, um, but but when it's over, it's almost like a little bit anticlimactic because you sort of you, you work all you work hard to get it, to get it, and then when it's over, it's like, oh, okay, well, that's cool, you know. So, so this means I don't ask the question. What this means? <laughs> uh, yeah, you could. Uh, but uh, no, I'm just and I'm I'm only being po- partly facetious. It's almost like. Uh, you know, on the ride home, and, and as you have said, and we have said on this podcast a million times, like, um, it, when you don't have a good round, no one gives a shit. And when you have a good round and win something, yeah, there's a flurry of people that wish you well. But in the end, I came home, I had, you know, Chinese food, I watched 30 Rock. It was pretty much, <laughs> you know what I mean? It was a, like I was excited, but the takeaway was it didn't change me. I was still, you know, same, you know, dopey guy. And anyway, um, so I feel great about it. It was a great, I I really, it was one of the, uh, another thrill for me. Absolutely. I've also, of of the, I'm just going to give you a couple of funny little stats. Of the five club championships I've won, um, this is the 
fourth stroke play one that I've won. And the third time for me that I've won a club championship, including the one at the National, in a playoff on the first hole. And I wanted to say that because later I wanted to explain how having that experience, what it did for me. Okay, so I'm. Uh, what do you, please continue. It's your press conference. Um, I want to take us to the playoff and what was going on in your state. Were you feeling nervous? Was the heart pounding a bit? And if it was, how did you bring it under a semblance of control? Great question. <clears throat> I'm a professional question master. Uh-huh. Of course, it's a great question. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I hear it's funny you say that because sometimes when when Fred and I are doing the show and some and somebody we're interview interviewing will say, "Oh, that's a good question." <laughs> we once in a while we we'll go, "Yeah, I thought so." That's why I asked it. Yeah, well, anyway, so it's just like you've been a broadcaster <laughs> for forty years. I've been a journalist for thirty years. That's what we do for a living. Yeah. Ask questions. We hope that every once in a while it'll be a really good one. <laughs> if you want me to go to the playoff. Now that's fine. Uh, I'll tell the the you know we'll we'll do the Stephen Covey thing. I'll I'll begin with the end, and then I'll, yeah. then we'll come back to some of the takeaways from you know being in the the state of you know nervousness and and uh, such. I'm just trying to get to the stuff that our listeners are going to like. No, I get are, it. Are, they're going to be able to grasp and go like, oh yeah, wow! I could imagine my well, heart would be pounding. So I'll tell the playoff story, and then I want to tell a couple of there, there's a couple of moments in the in the round uh, and in the in the tournament that were significant again for people with a you know uh, who have listened to us. Well, well so a couple of cool little nuggets. So um, I had a uh, the day where the, so I start off the day <clears throat> with a four, I'm four behind. First round, I shoot 75, and the guy that's leading shoots 71. He's a very nice player, but 71, you know, was, a, was what was an outlier for him. He's a four handicap, and, and shooting 71, one under par in a tournament is amazing, but, you know, <clears throat> it's, not, it's not his huge. Shooting 75 for me on the first day was kind of around, you know, I got my, uh, oh, hang on a second, decade. <clears throat> I've got my decade stats up. And my season scoring average is 74.75 something. So I shot my average round. So I had a sense that if I, you know, I'm in the last group on Sunday and, you know, if I can just hang in there, maybe I have a chance. So I, we, I, I end up, he doesn't, he fades down the stretch a little bit. And uh, somebody that finished ahead of me was tied up at the number that I, I was at. And I, you know, I had a chance to win in regulation at about a 20-foot putt. And I hit it online, maybe a titch too hard. And it hit the, by the way, here's a little fun thing I didn't know. You know the thing that lifts up the, the ball from the, the cup in Club Link, that black apparatus that you sort of... The, uh, the doohickey, I yeah. call it. Do you know what it's called? Uh, I found out it's doohickey? called the, mul- the Mully Cup. <laughs> I'm like what? Because on oh, the maybe uh, those spots, maybe maybe that's uh, <laughs> yeah. we got a lead on a new sponsor, dude. I'm on the first tee and Marshall's like and blah 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 and, and I'm touching the Mully Cup and I said, what did you just say? The what? <laughs> I thought that was amusing. So my my that my is. my putt in regulation to win because at that point I knew I was tied 
And I wasn't trying to, you know, bang it four feet by, but I did want to make sure it was a nice uphill putt, and I wasn't worried about it going too far past. And I, again, I might have been, a, if without a cup, and if without the mully cup stick thing, it might have actually gone in the hole. But it, here's the thing. In front of everybody, my ball, excuse me, hits it and bounces out. So here we go. I'm in a playoff. Hit a good drive. I hit a decent second shot that I thought went further than it did. And in fact, couldn't find the ball initially because I was looking about 40 yards ahead of where I thought it was. And somebody who was watching went, no, no, no. They came all the way out to find my ball for me. Decade, first thing, winning is a, is a matter of luck. And I had some bad luck in the tournament, but that was good luck. And not only was it good luck that the person helped me find it, but it was in the fescue, but it was in the kind of lie in the fescue where, and you know, we've all heard broadcasters say this, where the back of the ball was exposed. It was, uh, it was a kind of lie when you look straight down, it didn't look great. But when I put my club behind it, I'm like, oh, I, I can hit the ball. And uh, I had about 85 yards to the green. He was about the same, but on the fairway. I hit my shot and it couldn't have come up. You know, that kind of shot where, you know, it's like, oh, my God, that's perfect. Mm-hmm. It, 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 it was perfect contact and it went up high in the sky and it just cleared the bunker and then bounced up to the cup like six feet uphill putt. And, you know, everyone's going crazy. And so I walk up there. And as I told you the other day, the reason this moment was significant for me is while he was lining up the putt, my heart is pounding like all day long. I will tell you that I was having that you know, weird feeling in your sternum area all the entire day. And and that's another thing. It's not like I was going along and everything was great. It wasn't. I was training. Oh, it's, a, it's like every day there's struggles in your life and in your golf game. So I'm line, I'm, wait, I'm waiting for him to, he's, you know, circling the putt. So I, I sort of turned away from everyone. And I, I sort of do this thing where I kneel down and I stretch my back a little bit. And uh, that's what it looked like to anyone, what I was doing. But what I really was doing was I closed my eyes. You know, when we talk about, and you and I have been being advocating this for years, the reason that you meditate, I meditate, and good players do is under pressure, you want to have something to anchor yourself. So there I was closing my eyes and doing my, you know, sort of, um, you know, breathing and very slowly and very calmly trying to get my heart rate to go down because I was obviously excited and nervous and, you know, what would happen. And so rather than worry about that, I, I sort of did my little breathing. And then after a few seconds of that, I'm still in the crouch that I was in. I opened my eyes and I told you this is absolutely the truth. I looked around. It was about 630 at night and the wind was still howling. And uh, but the skies looked, you know, it was sort of like had been kind of cloudy and sunny all day and the sky looked beautiful. And I just said to myself, you know what, Howard? If nothing else, at least be grateful that you got back to this moment. Because I thought to myself, a year ago, I'm on the same green. I'm in a playoff. I had a chance to win. And I said to myself, if nothing else, win or lose, like if this guy sinks this putt, I thought to myself, win or lose, I was going to at least be acknowledged to myself that, you know, this was kind of cool that I, that I, you know, I, all the stuff that I did that got me back to this point. And then I got up and I read the putt. Here's how windy it was. I don't know if you guys do this at, at your club, but we were allowed because you're not because in club link because of COVID, you're not allowed to touch the flag. Mm-hmm. You're not allowed to take the flag out and or uh, the pin out. But we were allowed if you're and I'm going to tell you, Timmy, <clears throat> without being hyperbolic, hyper, 
without hyperbole. Prone to hyperbole. Thank you. It was the second windiest day I've ever played golf there. Oh, wow. Like it's, I've now, and we know it's Blue Springs is windy, Rattles windy, super windy. The windiest I've ever played, except for one other time. And so we were allowed to have, you know, like while you were putting, I I took, I I call it awning, I took my putter and I rolled the flag up in the grip so I could hold it for you. You know, when you got, you know, four or five feet from the hole, it was distracting. So that's what you did as a caddy, as a kid. Exactly. You would hold the flag and flap around. So I had the presence of mind. I was lining my putt up and I was that that flag. He missed his putt. I'm sorry. He misses his putt. He had a good putt. He hit it about, I'd say, like maybe three feet by. But it wasn't the kind of putt that he gave it a chance. And mm-hmm. um, I actually called Mike Marshall over our head pro. I said, Mike, could you just do you just hold the flag for me? Because I, I just didn't want that flapping noise while I made this or tried to make this six foot putt. That's cool. So I did that, and I, I hit a putt that, again, winning is a matter of luck. Uh, I hit a putt, to be honest with you, that half the time might have missed. Like, it when it was a nice putt. As soon as I left my putter, I knew it was going to make it to the hole, but it was a little more uphill than I guessed, and it was starting to break. It was a right-to-left putt inside the cup, and it started to kind of slow down and break to the right, and it just caught the hole and went in. And uh, yeah, much uh, screaming, fist pumping. I swore a couple times to myself. Like I was so, I was so, I'll tell you the truth. I was so tired, as I told you on the phone the other day. Oh, I I just didn't want to play any more holes. (laughs) I didn't. (laughs) Like I just wanted to sink it because I just, I don't want to go and I don't want to go back to 18 again. I got to go, I got to go all the way back there. (laughs) You know, no, no, and, and I was like, I, I, um, at one point on the 17th hole, there was a bunch of people following us, including my coach, Paul. And uh, I just drove by him. He sort of nodded at me. I just said, Coach, I'm fucking exhausted. Just exhausted. And this was on 17. Anyway, so you, you know, so that's the, the bare bones of, you know, I, I won it and it was great. And I was excited. Um, and I was proud of myself and all those things. Yeah, so... Again, uh, well, official congratulations, GSL, on uh, on our podcast. As you said, we had a we had a debrief uh, earlier in the week, but um, <laughs> stepping out of my reporter role, back to coach role, if you will. Um, so many good things that our STDs could take away from this, and that is, and one thing I want to make an observation is is, is that we don't. When we're in that state of something's at stake that we really want or is exciting, it's like it's you don't even need to be thinking. Like you didn't say at all that you were thinking about hoisting the trophy and what people would say. No, you're just your body just and brain just realize there's some big shit going down here. And you get excited. And like you say, you talked about that feeling under your sternum and your heart's going because your body's getting ready. But what you were talking about there was you had the had the awareness that you needed to ground yourself and i'm thinking that's that's a really good takeaway for our listeners is whether you're on the first tee playing with your boss or whatever or in a club c or whatever is grounding yourself and breathing are just those are just basic you know Swing thoughts, one-on-one stuff in terms of how to calm yourself down, get your heart rate down. But the other piece, too, is 
the gratitude piece. And why that's really important is that when we're in a state of gratitude, we're fully in the present moment. Mm-hmm. We're right there. We're not in future. This could happen or, or thinking back to this or regretting something, rumination. We're right here. And that's why, you know, as you said, this is something we've talked about over and over again on this show is that that regardless of what's happening, when we're in a state of gratitude, it's just a, a place of, of peace, of calm. And if you get right down to it, that's where we can get into flow and perform well. Uh, yeah. And I, and I think it's, you know, I can't remember when we probably it would be interesting to go back and find on the podcast when we first mentioned meditation. <clears throat> Excuse me. But I remember the guy that entered. I mean, I, you know, I'd been doing yoga a long time, but I never really considered meditation until Doolin uh, set me up with these Muse headbands. Yeah, that's right. Yep. And because when Paul's told me, you know, there's a way that, you know, meditation can help your golf game. I'm like, I'm in. Let's do it. <laughs> you know, sure. <laughs> um, but I can tell you having practiced now in meditation for some time, including both Saturday and Sunday morning. Excuse me. I have a meditation tape that uh, this guy that we had on the show, um, Scratch Attitude, Kent Osborne, because what he did for a living before he became a golf guy is he was an executive coach and a meditation kind of guy. And so his meditation tape that I listened to probably three or four times a week, but during the, the tournament, I listen to it every morning because it's about tying gratitude into your game. And, and, that, and the two things from his tape that I took away was the, the gratitude piece. But one of the things he says on the tape is, what else, and, I, and this is such a great thing for a guy like me, like egomaniac, he says, you, you've done this, you've done that, you're this, and you've done, you know, you've won all these things. What do you need, Howard, that will finally make you feel validated as a golfer. And on the first tee of both Saturday and Sunday, I wasn't looking for golf to, I wasn't looking for any outside, um, uh, nothing outside of me needed to tell me I'm a good golfer anymore. And if I'd have shot 87, 85, I still would have found a way to frame it that has nothing to do with my ability as a golfer or as a person. And, exactly. and more Your than identity and more yeah. than winning, you know, I've been first now four times in five years. The, the one time I was first and lost, I lost in a playoff, ironically enough. Mm-hmm. But the reason I, I'm proud isn't that I've won or whatever or I've transcended is that my behavior has become so much different around the game than it was in the days of, you know, golf hell or even a year ago, like. Let's not forget, <laughs> as one of my daughters reminded me. So she called me after the Saturday round. She said, how did it go? I said, that's pretty good. She said, so you didn't feel like punching the inside of your car? I went, no. Those, I said, that was so long ago. And it wasn't. It was only a year ago because, yes, I had progressed up. To, you know, I've been working on this for a long time. Excuse me. But I'd still had flashes of not understanding the game. And in a minute or two, I'm going to ask you a series of questions that are based on some of the questions you ask your golfers. But just to wrap this part up, so it wasn't that I was just proud that I physically can golf uh, well enough to win a tournament. It's that at no point in the round did I want to punch myself in the face. And, And win or lose, that's a much 
happier spot for me as a human being to be in around a game that occupies, as it does you, so much of our time. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I love that reaction. <laughs> you know, I just, there's so much, well, we said many times, it's like there's so much good stuff in there to, to mine. But what I think is really important when we talk about meditation, a lot of meditation, as Dan Harris said, has such a bad PR problem. Yeah. People don't understand it whatsoever. They think that, you know, it's about making my mind go blank. Not at or, all. No, it's more about just what am I aware of what I'm thinking or what, what's going on in my head and in, in, in just like observing it. And I think that what, what it does for us, meditation, is allows us to develop the skill of awareness of of saying being in a position of, I use this example all the time, being in a slow Tim Hortons drive through and, you know, finding yourself going, what the hell is he ordering everything on the golf yeah, damn exactly. menu? You know, and then yeah. realizing, oh, wait a sec, uh, me getting all upset is not going to make this line go any faster. That is the skill of awareness. The skill of awareness is, wow, I got a putt here and my heart is pounding out of my chest. <laughs> so, or I'm thinking of something or, or or whatever. And it's being able to, oh, I realize what's happening here. Yeah. And then you can respond to it. You know, I, I wanted to, there, there's a, there's a uh, you know, we've talked about this recently about how one of my goals for this year, uh, and as it has been for the last couple of years, was to learn and to continue to understand that every individual shot is not a personal statement on my ability. Exactly. <laughs> oh, yes. And, and I think a lot of golfers listening can relate to that statement because we get so upset over an individual shot thinking, you know, I, I used to, you know, famously talk to you that night after men's night about, you know, I try so hard. Why do I keep three punting? What's wrong with me? <laughs> um, <laughs> as opposed to going, you know, sometimes, and, 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 and again, why I love Decade is because, and there were, like, there were moments on the last nine holes that I had a 45-foot putt, a 35-foot putt, uh, a 30-foot putt, tough putts that I, that I, that because I wasn't trying to sink them, which I learned from decade, I was, no part of me was trying to get that 45-foot putt to the hole other than just have it gently start, you know, so... I've, I've learned those things, but, but the best part of decade for me is the expectations part, knowing that bad luck can happen and that if you if you if a ball bounces here or there, you know, the, uh, the, the variable eventually will even out for you. And the reason I wanted to bring that up is on the second hole of the last round. I don't know what it is about this hole, but in, in four rounds of you know tournament golf over two seasons in the club championship, I've made a two double bogeys and a triple bogey on this one hole, or I would never have been anywhere near a fucking playoff. Anyway, so, so 
but I want to describe. I want to describe the whole. So I, I double bogey. So, so you felt fucking pissed off at this hole, but you didn't want to punch your face. You wanted no. to punch the hole. No, I'm. Th- I'm. I'm. I'm, ta- I mean, I'm just thinking about it in retrospect. On the first yeah, day, yeah, yeah. first round of the first of uh, the club championship this year, I double bogey it. Second round, and I still shoot seventy five. So the second round again, it's howling wind and it's into the wind, and I pull hook my drive into some haggis. I I punch it out. I'm not at this point after I found my ball. I'm trying to make a bogey. I punch it out nicely. I hit this great three wood about fifty. 50 yards from the green. This is in the second round. And I've got a 50 yard uh, little back in your stance, kind of low punchy, you know, lob wedge, kind of a low. And I love this shot. It's, it's a kind of a no brainer for me. But the problem is the pin is literally a step off the back of the green. And when I hit it, I thought it was perfect. Like I'm looking to hit it 10 or 15 feet, two putt, make bogey, see ya. But the ball bounces, checks. And then it goes sort of a little bit dribbly, dribbly. And instead of being on the fringe... I'm literally 12 feet from the hole, but the ball went into the rough and it was in one of those lies where it's sitting in the middle of grass and there's lots of grass behind it. So I don't want to hit a, I don't want to chip it because I knew it's the kind of one you're going to easily skull. So I do this mm-hmm. little thing, you know, we, I think we've all done it before where you take your putter, put it back in your stance and just kind of bounce the putter onto the ball. But it's the kind of shot where, you know, I could have hit you it close. No idea. I have no you idea. Have no idea. I hit it fifteen or you know, twelve feet by the hole. I lip out that putt and I make a double bogey. Now, an older version of me would have instantly <laughs> gone into, "Why did this happen? Golf hates me." I used to say that. Why does golf hate me? Um, as I, love a, that. I used to say it as a joke, but it was what I was in. I was saying it because it was feeling it. Totally. But I walked away from that double bogey again on that hole, again knowing that I had the rest of the round to play. And I thought, I, I recognized what had happened, had nothing to do with the shot I hit into there. I did everything I could. In fact, on my mental scorecard, which I kept, in fact, I did all my stats both days during the round because that's how I play golf now. I wrote down out of seven, I gave myself a five out of seven. Because on five of those seven shots, no, I'm sorry, I gave myself a six out of seven. Because the the drive was the only shot that I didn't, I wasn't fully there for, that I was trying to steer it. I didn't let it go. But the rest of the shots, I tried my best and I was fully focused on every one and I made a double. So fast forward now, it's the 19th hole. I'm in a playoff. I find that ball, as I described it. I had a, 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 it could have been horrible. It could have been the kind of lie where I would have had to chip out sideways. And now I've got to get up and down to make par from 85 yards. But I got, I got a good break. I got, I got the kind of break that, you know, it, my point being that in any round of golf, any season of golf, those breaks even out. But the way I used to interpret them, and my older brother's going to hear this and love this, it's I reframed it, and that's what it was. I, I, I got a chance to look at the, the, the double bogey in the, in the light of, well, sometimes that happens. Yeah, it's a drag. It's happened on the second hole of the last round of the club championship. But as you would say to a, a, a client, it doesn't matter when it happens. It's how you react to it. It's how you, as it's how our, our dueling friend would say, it's how you manage your state. And that's available to a 15 handicap or a scratch golfer like me. All of that is available to everyone who plays because that has nothing to do with your golf swing. It has to do with you, the way you view what happens to us when we play. 
please think uh, your reaction, sir. Uh, well, was what I love about golf is that it, it it's the metaphor, if you will, <laughs> for life. And it sounds so cliche, but cliches are cliches because there's there's truth to them. And you think about that. If you take that attitude to the rest of your life, how things become just not as dramatic, not as being caught in a story or the oh, woe is me pit of despair that we often go into. Stuff happens. Yeah. We, we can make, sometimes we make mistakes. Um, and, and, you know, it's another AFGO learning, you know, the fucking growth opportunity. Yeah, yeah, man. But when we get caught in a story, we're, we're caught. And getting out of that requires a lot of hard work. So when we're able to be in this place of going, oh, this thing just happened. I mean, I remember you telling me this phrase. <laughs> I remember you described hitting an off-the-world shot and going, well, that just happened. Yeah, that just happened. Like, what yep. a great approach, really, because that's what happens, folks, in life. We get things, get good breaks, bad breaks. Does it have any bearing on our worth as a human being, our identity, how the world views us? Who fucking cares? It doesn't matter. But why our listeners and myself and yourself, why we get the why under pressure where we'll say pressure under a, a competition or you're having a good round or you want to impress somebody under any kind of you know, outside influence, it's easy to default to the story we tell ourselves. Oh, woe is me. That Why did that happen? Why couldn't the ball just... If that ball had just literally been four, uh, three inches closer, I would have been able to putt it, two-putt, bogey, whatever, whatever. But but what, what experience has given me, you know, a year... It was a few years ago when I started saying, oh, well, that just happens. They're all just these little, you know, sort of building blocks on the way um, as I was saying to my friend Dan, uh, you know, he's not a golfer, but I said, what I used to think the idea was to build my golf swing so that it was anti-fragile. But at some point, we've all understood that your golf swing isn't, is never, it's always going to be good or bad or some days are better than others. But I said, what I real, I've come to realize over the course of this podcast that what can be anti-fragile is your strategy your state management, and your ability to score your ball. And what I think a lot of 12 and 8 and 18 handicappers and, and even some lower handicappers, what they don't understand, because I didn't, is that, be, and this is what I wanted to ask you, the phrase being good at golf, I used to think that meant you were, you were a good golf ball striker. Hmm. And this is where I wanted to tie it into what you often ask a first client, or you first have a client. Tim will say to them, why do you, we've talked about this. You ask the question, why do you play golf? And then you have uh, a conversation about what that reveals about the person. But I would ask you, when you hear the phrase being good at golf, what is the first thing that comes to your mind? For me, it comes to, uh, now that I've been doing this for a while, I've had a lot of different experiences. So... Um, this is going to sound really terrible to some people, but because of the experiences I've had as a coach and as a player, I operate at a different level of consciousness. So it doesn't mean I'm better than, it just means I've had some experiences that have opened me up. So when I think of when, when people say being good at golf, it means um, that there are things like consistent and that they control their golf ball and that 
other people will see them and go, hey, he's a good golfer. Mm-hmm. That type of thing. A lot of it is around that external validation. And to me, there's zero value in applying a judgment such as being good because that's what that is. That's a judgment. Really, a good golfer could be someone who could say is a 29 handicap and they go out and they have a great time every day. They have a wonderful time with their partner. They get some exercise and they they hit some, some shots that go where they may want them to go. They make some putts. Anytime we're into any place of this is good or this is bad, it's like getting caught in this story. Understood. We are in delusion and fantasy. But we're I, not in the real world. But I would say that most people would answer that question, um, and, and I like your answer. I, I'm not judging it. I'm just saying most people, when they, when they think of, okay, so let's just say that we know that people judge all the time. That and, and again, as a guy that's played the game for 50 years, it wasn't until somewhere in the last four or five years that I, I've come to understand, especially this year and last year for sure, that, that and I know I jokingly introduced the Pathways to Par uh, triad of skills, strategy, and scoring, but, but I used <laughs> to think that a good golfer, or I wanted to be a good golfer and seen as somebody that can hit a golf ball better than you. But mm-hmm. then I look back on my the life I had in competition. And I think about the guys that I used to think, wow, I hit it way better than he does. And they beat me all the time. And the one guy in particular that I think of now, and I almost sent him a note, but uh, there's a guy that I looked up to at the national for years. His name is Dan Partland. I've mentioned him on the show because if you saw him hit a golf ball, you'd think, that guy's not that good. And he was a scratch for years at the National because he hit a weak baby, like not even a good strong cut. He had sort of this dinky cut. He was given given to wildly blocking it off the tee. Like he really wasn't a very good ball striker. But he, he won nine, nine club championships at the National. Like on the wall there, his name is just covered in little leaves. It's crazy. And he used to say this to me, humble, if I hit the ball like you, I'd never shoot over 70. And I used to think that his skill set of getting up and down is what beat me. But what I realize now is that his strategy is what beat me because he golfed his ball. He, he understood his limitations. Like, I don't know how many times I've said to people, they would say, oh, I just keep hitting this little, you know, cut. I go, well, then aim left, <laughs> you know, exactly. just aim left for today. Stop trying to fix it. On this golf game, just aim lefter. And that was Dan Partland's game. He just kept it in play. And when he didn't, he would chip out sideways and he would take his chances around the green and never made more than bogeys and rarely made penalty shots, etc. All the things that, you know what, has been teaching people. We went to that seminar in 2017, you and I. And when Fawcett said, stop making, stop trying to make birdies, stop trying to sink putts, don't two chip, and try not to get too many penalties, that's, that's doable no, no matter what your handicap is. Because if you're, if you're a guy that shoots 90 all the time and you can make some doubles instead of triples, you might shoot 86 all the time. So that's what I mean about most people, myself included, felt that being a good golfer was somebody that could hit good shots. And, and I think that being a good golfer now is somebody that whatever 
level of flushing you've got going that day, you can still, you know, like those guys on the tour, they can still, they can turn a, a 75 into a 71 because they also remember, oh yeah, I get up and down. I, I work hard on that part of my game. And, and that's where the real sort of game is. And But you and I, listen, when we first met, we talked for hours about every gadget we've owned, every lesson we've taken. Like if there was two men, I don't think I know two other guys that <laughs> sought salvation in the motion as much as you and I did. But there is oh. no salvation in it. There's no, not. absolutely. So I think it's a uh, strategy is... That's how you take your game to the next level. You get people, so many people come into this game, and it's kind of like if if golf gets its hooks in on you, and you really you take lessons and you practice, you amazing the the um, how much better you can get at playing this game. But about three years, you plateau until you learn course management and strategy, like you were talking about. Um, that just makes such a crucial difference. And that's been such great learning for me and I think our, our listeners um, for the past couple of months. But I also think that so much is important is around your mindset and that your value as a human being does not go up and down with the golf shots you hit. It has zero to do with you as a, as a person, your value in the, in the world and you know, who you are really at your, at your essence. And I had a very interesting conversation with a, a fellow yesterday uh, who's been through some pretty interesting experience in his life. He would be, quote, viewed as a success in the business world. Uh, he's also had some tragedy in his life. And we're talking about golfers who really impress us. And the one that came to mind we thought was Jordan Spieth. And the reason I say that is that I think that Jordan Spieth, he, he, he's always been a grounded person. Yes, he came out you know, he's always been a successful golfer. You know, when he's 14, he's beating 18-year-olds. You know, he comes out early 20s and wins three majors. Yeah, he's just come out of, of a swoon. But I think what's held him together and why he's come back is that he's always been grounded. And I think that in the Spieth family, what was the most important thing? The well-being of his daughter, of, of, of their daughter and Jordan's sister, who in the vernacular would be regarded as challenged. So what was the most important thing? Her. And I think that kind of thing is an indication of what's really important in life, as opposed to whether I can hit a golf shot that meets my expectations, whether someone will say something, what my handicap is, and where I end up on a, on a plaque in a clubhouse. It really has zero to do with that. And so I think that when we can... Use our awareness and we all get caught in a story. For goodness sakes, everyone does. You know, I do all the time. But it's that ability to go, oh, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> this isn't life or death. This doesn't determine whether I'm a good golfer or I'm a choke or a flub or whatever. I'm just playing this game. So this is the last thing I'm going to say on this is that when we invest meaning to golf shots, that's when we're in trouble. It's yeah. a golf shot. If you're able to hit a golf shot and let that go, and yeah, you could say that was a good shot or a bad shot, sure. But again, as soon as we attach meaning to something, and then we're into story, and then we're into fantasy land. We're into our heads, and 
that's <laughs> really that's we're not connected to reality at all. I, I I totally agree. And the thing is too, like I I know sometimes we bounce around saying, well, you know, even if you're a fifteen handicap, you can learn. But but I, it's it's not just. And what you said at the beginning of that, I love that, you know, course management is a phrase we've known, everyone heard, but I don't even know how to say what I'm about to say, so it's going to be awkward, but there is only that. Call it course management or call it strategy or call it the game, but there, that is, and, I, and, and listen, I'm as guilty as anyone. I missed that completely. In fact, I look back at my 30s when I was a pretty good golfer. You know, I played in the Ontario Amateur. I played in the Canadian Amateur. I won the club championship. And I think to myself, how did I do that? Because I had no fucking clue how to play. I didn't. I was just athletic enough. And I knew enough that an amount of the time I could be counted on to shoot a decent score. But the thing that all golfers want, they say they want, we say we want consistency. But back to my original hypothesis, when golfers say that, they think it's swing, that they're trying to be consistent. And as we've established, you can't. What you can be consistent in, like I'm going to play today on uh, our men's day, and I don't know what I'm going to shoot, but I know there's a couple of absolutes. I'm going to make the best decisions I can, and I won't do anything within my ability because, again, I'm a human being. I, I know I will minimize the errors that I make. And on that point, I want to tell you a quick story and how I learned something. So are you okay with me just going on, or do you have anything you want to say about that? I'm listening. So I'm on I this- know that following this conversation, it will, there will be a gift in it for me and our listeners. Okay. <laughs> so people start watching they, you know, the club, I'm in the last group. So a bunch of people started coming around to watch us about four or five holes to go. In fact, it was so sweet. One of the guys that, you know, I don't really know him that well, but I, I was walking up to the green and he just said, Hey, how you doing? I said, good. He said, are, are you okay if I watch? I'm like, sure. I can whatever you want to do. So I'm not what the, I, so after nine holes, I asked, uh, we had our, our head pro Mike Marshall followed us all the way around just to make sure of any, you know, he wanted to make sure that it was a championship, blah, blah, blah. And it was nice, nice of him to do that. But I, I would sort of nod at him or he might say good shot. But after nine holes, um, you know, I was five over after six. And then I went birdie, birdie, bogey and finished the front nine shooting 40, which, by the way, was about even par for the day. So I felt pretty totally. good. So I walked by Marshall. I go, how am I doing? And he says, you really want to know? I said, yes. Now I want to know at this point. He says, You're, you and Brad are tied. So-and-so is a couple back. I go, great. So after the back nine, I'm on uh, the 17th hole. And I'm, as I'm driving to the 17th, no, I go to the 17th hole and I do a quick calculation. And I know I'm two ahead of everybody. And I hit a weak drive, pull hook. I was trying to hit a little low bunt cut. And it doesn't cut. And it stays up. And the reason I want to tell you this is, is what I, is the mistake I made. I got 185 yard into a left to right wind to a left pin. The wind is howling off the left. And, and I'm thinking, okay, I'll just choke down on a four iron. And my goal was to hit it somewhere up to the right, which was the right idea. But it was a really hard shot. And it was on, you know, again, I, I've got a two shot lead at this point. That's why it's important to know. And I hit a weak sort of push cut it leaves me with about a 20 yard pitch shot out of some heavy grass and i make the cardinal mistake of two chipping i just i just don't swing hard enough and i it goes up to the top of the green and it comes all the way down a shaved bank 
Then I have to wait while we go and look for the other guy's ball. I've just made a huge mistake. Then I chip it up to about eight feet, miss the putt, and make a double bogey. Now I'm tied. I say to Marshall, okay, where does that leave me? He goes, you really want to know? I said, yeah. He goes, you and a guy that's finished are tied now. So I know I either have to par or birdie the last hole. If I bogey it, I lose. So I'm just, I want everyone to know that because I was aware at that moment and still, you know, still had, a, you know, the presence of my mind and body to hit a great drive on the 18th tee. Anyway, so going, we all know I go on to win in a playoff, but I didn't have to be in a playoff. So my, a bunch of people are watching, including my coach. Hang on a second. This guy's at the door. Hold on. This is what I love about podcasting <laughs> at our homes. <laughs> Knocks at the door. The dog goes off. Well, it's just kind of fun. But uh, I am really, really um, looking forward to how this story turns out. Did you order this, Dan? I didn't order anything. Sorry. Is, is that breakfast? Was it the uh, the UPS guy? No, it was somebody ordered. Uh, I feel bad for the guy because somebody orders some food and he thinks it's here, um, but it's not. Okay, so so the guy watching this is my coach, and 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 then after the round's over and he's we're sitting in the parking lot, everything's over, the day's over. I'm excited. You know, I'm feeling pretty good about myself. And we start talking about that hole. And he says to me, what did you hit there on that second shot? I saw I was trying to choke down on the four iron and hit it over there. Stan, stop it. And for the first time, listen to him. For the first time in all of this rigmarole that went on where I made a double bogey, I had 185 yards to the green, but I only had about 130 yards to get over you know, there's a, a hazard sort of thing. Yeah. And he says to me, why didn't you lay up? And I, it stopped me in my tracks. Yep. I said, what? He said, dude, all you needed to do was make a bogey and you'd still have a one shot lead. But until that, he said that to me. And, and, and again, as ascended as you think I am, that the takeaway, <laughs> the takeaway for me was so profound because I'm like, you're right. The high, because I could have hit that four iron. Believe me, again, left to right wind, ball way below my feet, pin is left. I got no chance of getting it anywhere near the pin. It's a four iron. It's a fucking <laughs> four iron, and it's, and I'm I'm vibrating. I've got a yes. two shot lead. All I got to do is not die in the next thirty minutes. I win this thing again. Exactly. And when he said to me, "Why didn't you lay up?" Uh, I just looked at him like. It, it was so interesting at that moment. I thought it, it never now it now the good thing about experience is it will next yeah. time. Totally. All I had to do was take out a seven iron, plenty of club. That's my 160 club. So easy to hit versus a four iron. I would have, you know, popped it up about 40 yards short of the green, 30 yards. Maybe I would have had a nice lie, not in the rough, in the fairway. I could have hit it 30 feet from the flag, two putted, and then had a one shot lead on the last hole. And that par would have been enough to win. The point is that in that moment, I didn't have the presence of mind to think of that as an option. And for everyday play in golf, the more options you can think of, 
because as part of the pathways to par, what we want to do is make bogeys when we're in trouble. And I was in trouble. To be clear, I didn't hit a very good drive, and it left me in a very awkward spot. So, in effect, <clears throat> I've already made one mistake. Now I've made two because I put myself in a difficult lie. Now I make three because I double chip it. And, and making a double bogey at that point was really all I could do. You know, I could have stubbed that third, fourth shot, and it would have come back. I could have, the whole thing could have been over then. But not mm. if I have taken seven iron and laid up short of the green. So that's what I want to say. So we joke about you ascending. Yes. <laughs> oh, yes, and that you've enlightened and all this stuff. But what your story reminds us is that, oh, yes, indeed, we are human. As I think it was Shylock in Merchant of Venice, cut me, I bleed. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what I mean by that is that is that particularly under pressure, we revert back to 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 old behaviors and and patterns. We just it just comes with having lived whether it's three decades or being in your seventh as you are. I know that sounds hard. No, you are. It's okay. But we we it's so hard. That's why this whole thing around being aware of what's happening as opposed to being foom in my head and reacting is so important and. So now you have had that experience, you'll learn from it. And that, that's why um, I'm trying to struggle with something that's a, a great metaphor that would make me sound profound and impress everyone. <laughs> but you <laughs> forgot it? <laughs> yeah, I, or I just couldn't come up with it. Um, is, is just experience, experience is the greatest teacher. Well, it and, really and as I, as I this, thing, this new sermon that my daughters, my daughters talk about me and that Howard, you know, daddy's got his, what's his new sermon? My new sermon for them is that in order to get it, in order to get experience, you have to have experiences. Now, yes. the, the reason I mentioned that whole, because, you know, uh, again, if you're, if you're a golfer like I am and you think a 185 yard four iron into a howling left to right win is a shot you can pull off. Well, maybe I could if I was just playing with you, me and Ronan, but there's a different here's the way I used to I would I would have looked at that shot in in this in this manner a few years ago I would hit that shot and thought I'm bad at hitting four irons off downhill lies but (laughs) isn't everybody isn't everybody exactly (laughs) and and I would think there was something wrong with me and my golf swing and I just didn't practice enough and I should go to the range and practice hitting four irons off all that shit but in, in actual fact and you've used this term recently and I love it to be in flow means hitting a seven iron instead of a four iron. And I'll tell you why. Because there's a lot less stress. And you and I have both made this point. There's a lot less stress hitting a seven iron than there is hitting a four iron. And less stress allows you to be more in the flow of things. Because when I would, if I had looked down and, and saw the loft of a seven iron, I would have had such more, because somewhere in my body, I knew that was a really, that was a 10 out of 10 shot. But a seven iron off that line, that's like a four or five. You know, it's just a normal shot. I could hit it out there anywhere I wanted, you know. And with the kind of adrenaline I had, I probably would have hit it closer to the green than I could have imagined. Yeah. Hey, I want to ask you a question. Yes, sir. Um, We had... um, Could you ask it into the microphone? Yeah, thank you. Thank you. We had uh, a great young guy on our show a couple times, and he's... Oh boy, uh, he's he he's a manager and also a caddy for a PGA Tour player. Um, dang it, can't remember his name, but 
Anyways, uh, he we talked to him about the whole thing of looking at leaderboards or not. Yes. And so just some people would say they never look at leaderboards, but you wanted to know where you're at. So um, explain sort of why you thought that was important that you, you where you stood. Well, after nine holes, <clears throat> I just wanted to confirm what I that because I was playing with the leader, and uh, at one point on the front nine, he was seven ahead of me. You know, I can do the math. He's four to start, and now he's three ahead of me on this nine. I'm seven behind, mm-hmm. and I kind of clawed my way back a little bit. But after that double bogey, I just wanted to make sure. Like, did I need a birdie to win, or okay. would par put me into a playoff? And I also have enough experience. I felt at the time that knowing it wasn't going to freak me out. I, and I Because I, I basically knew I was too ahead of our friend Mike Bondi, who played very nicely. Uh, in fact, he bogeyed the last hole, or he would have been part of the playoff. So I knew that double bogey, bogey tied me with Mike. So I already knew I was tied. I just wanted to know if there was anyone else ahead of me, or, and in fact, there was a third person tied at the same number as Mike and I. And that's why now. But for the rest of the round, I never looked at I never looked at the numbers. I never watched where I was. And um, but I, I wanted to. The reason I wanted to leave on the double bogey story is it's a great lesson that in the middle of this round that I was, you know, playing pretty. You know, I would say, <clears throat> excuse me. You know, I shot seventy nine on Sunday, and I shot seventy two yesterday. And I'll tell you that seventy nine was harder than the. Was, was a better score than that 72. Completely. Uh, it was so much a better score, it's hard to even quantify, not just to the degree of difficulty of the situation, but the degree of difficulty of the day, the, the weather itself, right? Yesterday, I played a much longer golf course. I played Copperhead at Rattlesnake, which is about 6,750, almost 6,800 yards, but there was no wind, very little mm-hmm. wind. So it plays fairly short for me. You know, you're not trying to hit seven irons 120, <laughs> you know, <laughs> or, or you're not hitting nine irons 170. So, right. But that's 79. I was proud of it. And, and I really wish I hadn't double bogeyed the 17th hole. I really yeah, wish absolutely. I'd made bogey and could have just kind of chunked my way down the 18th, you know, hole. But the reason I bring it up is that in every round of golf, you know, I had thought of all the different things I could have done. But until Paul said to me, why didn't you lay up? I just never thought of it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's what we do as golfers. We see situation and it's like, okay, here's what I got to do. And that's why PGA Tour and LPGA Tour players have caddies. So the caddy goes, well, wait a sec. There's yep. this option as well. And Great that's, point. That's, that's why they have caddies in many ways. And they're not just camels. They're there to make sure they think through things and – Oh yeah, I never thought of that. Yeah. Yeah, and and usually I'm I'm and I think, you know, I I've worked hard to be my own good caddy, like to go over the options. But as Paul and I talked about in the parking lot after the round, all I really needed to do was to not make a double bogey. Mm-hmm. And if I had thought that at the time and thought, "Okay, Howard, you don't need to do anything special here. Just make a bogey from this point." Like look at it like I'm 185 yards from the green and I'm going to lay up on this par 4. That's I have a four shots ahead of me to make a five. And, um, you know, as I tell my brother David and my brother Stephen and all my sort of guys I talk to in the world of golf that, you know, saving that one shot 
or parts of a shot, the more you can do that. That's how it all sort of adds up to lower scores. Absolutely. Um, anyway, I, I thank you for your uh, counsel. Uh, I don't really have anything else. I mean, I, you know, there's a million great things and it's, you know, it's been, you know, it's exciting. And, and in the end, though, it's like I'll go back to golf today as I did yesterday and just be like, OK, well, now, you know, I, what's what's the shot here? You know, like my golf swing yesterday felt pretty good. Uh, I felt mm-hmm. good about how I was hitting it, but I still, you know, I was one under on the 18th hole and I smother hooked my drive on the 17th hole. I, I killed my drive. One of the best drives of the day made birdie. First time I think I've ever birdied the 17th hole on Copperhead. It's a very difficult par four. And I'm feeling good about myself. I'm one under par on the tee. And of course, I smother hooked the fuck out of it. <laughs> so that's because that's golf, you know? Yeah. I, and even though you're GSL, you're still human. Yeah. And, and I thought, isn't that hilarious? Way to smother hook this drive. Because a little bit of excitement seeped into my body thinking, you know Completely. what? I, I shoot under. Here's what I thought. And again, I'm a dick. I thought if I shoot under par in this course, first of all, that's awesome. But I also knew in the back of my mind that I needed one lower score to make, you know, what happened happen. And uh, I knew that I was going to, you know, I didn't know what to what the number would would be, but I knew that, you know, if I finished under par, I'd probably my handicap would drop to that place that I wanted it to be for as long as we've been doing the show. So I'll say it. Um, Yeah, you put in your score, you shot a 72 and your you put in the number and boom, it came up that it was a. It was uh, point zero nine. Zero point nine. Yep. Zero point nine, which means plus handicap. So, <laughs> yeah. For six years we've been doing this podcast, and I've been saying I want to be a scratch golfer. I want to get down to zero. But as my buddy Charlie Fitz said yesterday. So uh, how does it feel? I said, I don't know. I thought it would feel different. I thought there'd be banners. I thought there might be at least a cake. <laughs> there, there's nothing. No, you know? Well, you know, it's the same thing. So you win your senior club seat on Sunday. You, the numbers for a day or so, hopefully it continues. You become, you hit this milestone, become a plus handicap. But then you have to drive home. And there's somebody who won't let you That's right. into their lane. <laughs> Don't you know who you're blocking? <laughs> oh, I know. No, I know. Well, yeah. and the kids at the back, the kids at the back shop, they still ignore you. Oh you yeah. <laughs> And, and by no, the way, to be clear, I, I don't think it's a plus handicap. I think, you know, basically my handicap now, and I, and I did the math, I, did, I went on Golf Canada and I said, you know, what is it against, uh, you know, my home course and whatever. And so I'm, you know, e- even at a 1.2, I was sort of a zero, but, um, but now I'm officially a zero. And I sent, so- I, I sent Scott Fawcett and Lou Stagner a note saying at the beginning of this season, I was a 2.2 because, you know, my handicap kind of went up like everyone's did. Because I started sort of last year, I was a 1.9 or 1.8. I said at, at the beginning of April or whatever, I was a 2.2. And then I put this score in today and uh, this happened. And Fawcett wrote back and, you know, he sort of quoted that tweet and he said, I've been telling you guys that if you if you follow the decade strategy, and this is what he said, it's actually impossible 
not to have lower scores. It's impossible. And I know I've been talking about it, but I will say this for anyone, no matter what your handicap level is, that this thing has shaved the little bits off each of my categories of play to the point where, you know, I would have been pretty thrilled shooting 72 at Copperhead a couple of years ago. But when it was, it wasn't, not that it wasn't thrilling, it just didn't seem to be that big a deal. And I, I don't say that to be a dick. It's just you can shoot your lower scores um, without it being too much excitement. You know, I didn't I didn't hit that many amazing shots. I just hit a lot of like, okay shots, you know. I hit a couple bad ones. Like I say, I smother hooked my drive. I hit a couple of good ones. But in the end, it's just, uh, can you just mitigate your three putts? I only had one. Penalty shots, I had none. Two chips, none. You know, and after the, I, the only one I three-putted was 55 feet. That's going to happen. Mm-hmm. So, yes, finally it happened. And, again, I got to go back to golf today, and I could shoot 85, you know, because it's golf. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, you, you never own golf. You might rent it for a bit. but <laughs> I love that phrase, and I want to finish on that thought. You can own your golf game forever. You just can't own your golf swing ever. I think when we say those things, oh, you can, you can't own golf. Well, that's not true. You can. You just can't own. You can't predict your golf swing day to day. You know, my shoulder hurts a little bit last couple of days, like the outside, my rotator cuff. Yeah. The only golfer who I think, I honestly think that Mo Norman is the only player who who I ever saw own his game golf swing, uh, golf swing. But then again, the the thing about Mo. Is that um, you know he won? I think it was something like close to sixty tournaments. So those are like two day and more events. He had it's either seventeen or eighteen hole in ones. Shot fifty nine a couple times. Yeah, at least I think it was at least three times. Sixty about four or five times. Anyways, the guy could obviously golf his ball. But when I watched Mo hit balls, he hit them off ranges. So I didn't see Mo play in tournaments. He never ever missed a shot never and he could just do he could step on a ball and then you know hit it you know the thing would be submerged and hit a driver and still hit it dead solid perfect but the thing about Mo is that I didn't see him in tournaments but from people who who saw him play they said he he owned his he owned his swing Uh, Ken Venturi I interviewed him and he said that the reason he got called pipeline is it used to be that in the old days the ir- the main irrigation pipe would go straight down the middle That's right. of 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 a hole and mo would hit it straight down the pipeline every time so hence it be called pipeline mo but it would have been interesting to have been able to see mo obviously it's total conjecture i talk about fantasy every once in a while this would be total fantasy is that we didn't get to see mo in say the U.S. Open mm-hmm. against Ben Hogan, uh, against uh, Jack Nicholas or Bryson DeChambeau, so it's hard to say if he would have owned his swing under that championship pressure. Well, I would say you know it's funny because I, I stumbled I stumbled upon this the other day on this uh, platform called TikTok. Somebody has started putting up snippets of Mo Norman talking about the game. I bet it's Todd Graves. It might be Todd, Todd, but but, um, first of all, to to your point about owning your owning your swing, Tiger Woods said that he said, you know, there's a famous interview with Tiger talking about Mo saying Mo is the only one, 
maybe beside Hogan that ever owned their Correct. swing. But but I found these TikTok moments. They're about 45-second clips of Mo talking about the game, the game that we're talking about. He had a real grasp of it. In fact, the guy I played with yesterday, uh, a guy named Jamie Cavanaugh, also a very good player, we were talking about some of these strategy things, and he quoted this Mo quote about how, um, and you probably know it, it's that one where Mo said, most people's play with hope and fear, hope right. it won't go bad, fear it will. You know what I mean? Like he had a lot of stuff on the mental side of the game that just blew me away. Like he had a real sense of the game, not just, and everyone thinks of Mo, myself included, as the greatest ball striker that ever played. But you can't shoot 59 four times unless you understand variance. Like I guarantee you, Mo didn't shoot at every flag he could because that's not, that would make no sense. Even if you were the straightest ball striker of all time, because you know, there's always a little bit of variance, even in Mo's case, even if it was a couple yards. So, uh, yeah, I'm going to I'm going to I was going to send you one of these, but it was really interesting. Mo being interviewed about the mental aspect of the game. Oh, yeah. He found, you know, I'll say like almost like religion, religious fervor around that part of the game. He uh, w- w- let's say this for another time. Yeah, let's, I was going to say because we're, we're already at sort of the uh, swing thoughts uh, yeah. best before date. Um, but what oh, I should share the one yes. the one moism that I absolutely love, and you can take this to all parts of your game. It connects with what we're talking about. Mo said to play with an alert attitude of indifference. Yes, I thought that was one of uh, just a beauty. Yeah, I, again, I, I I was really blown away. And if you guys are if you have access to TikTok or even YouTube. Um, just Google some of this oh, stuff. Yeah, it's all over the it, place. It really is something else. Thanks to Jonathan Wong, JWApparelInc.com. Uh, everyone looking good in all these uh, different brands. And thanks to our friends at uh, TaylorMade Golf. Uh, there's the ball. There's the irons. There's the driver. And it's all there for you at TaylorMadeGolf.ca. If you want to hook up with Tim, uh, as many of our uh, Swing Thought nerds have uh, availed themselves, including our buddy Bondi and others, uh, O'ConnorGolf.ca. And, of course, uh, Humble and Fred shows uh, next week. Uh, we're back on Tuesday uh, at HumbleandFredRadio.com. And, again, thanks for your uh, time and patience today, everyone. We on down south.